Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a, it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. And I said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good luck. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. Second cap and first cap and whatever. Hello and welcome to the Irish Times Second Captain's Podcast. Owen and Ken here today. Hi, Ken. How are you? Hi, Owen. How are you? Good to see you. Uh, it's good to see you as well. Yep, we're just a few days out from the first of the All Ireland Football semi finals. And in news in late last night, Tiernan McCann's proposed eight week ban has been overturned in large part, presumably because there's no mention anywhere in the rule book of an eight week ban for his offensive diving. The CCCC tried to hit him with this sort of catch all misconduct charge. The CHC, Ken, Central Hearings Committee, I think it's the CHC, said, nuh-uh, CCCC, you're not going to get that one past us. We've had a look at you crazy cats, we've had a look at the rules here, and a dive is clearly punishable by a yellow card only. Uh, case dismissed. Mm. I'm not sure I don't have all the, 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 I presume that that's the tone that they took. Are you concerned that this habit of diving could infiltrate the GAA as it has your beloved sport of soccer? Well, I felt that it discredited the association. Uh, that was the... That was the rest of the line, yeah. That was the language of the... Misco- misconduct that is considered to have discredit- discredited the association. I want, how, how does it discredit the association? I don't understand that. It discredits the player, discredits Tiernan McCann, the individual, and po- possibly his team. I don't understand how it discredits the association. No, well, that's really, why... It's a bit of a leap, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, the appeals people, Ken, or the Central Hearings Committee, agreed with you that it's a bit of a leap, hence they have overturned or not pushed through the man. I mean, it is a, it is a quite a funny video. I mean, it is a, a really um, a really good dive by Tierney McCann. There's, a, there's an impressive level of technical uh, ability on display there. You know, he... It's a totally convincing dive, which the referee is watching as it happens, and he's totally fooled by it. I still can't believe the referee is fooled by it. I mean, the thing that... watched it again today. But the, the, I mean, so the, so the Monaghan player puts his hand up, and uh, he goes to... He strokes Tiernan McCann in the head. Tiernan McCann, first of all, you can see he's got this big grin on his face. So he's obviously taunting his opponent in some way. Well, they already had the game won, but pretty much by this stage as well, Tyrone. So it's quite clear that it's one of those unpleasant smiles that Tiernan <laughs> McCann has in his face. It's not, it's, not a, it's not a warm smile. It's not a fraternal expression. Gormless? 
No, no, it's not. It's not gormless. It's a. It's an unpleasant smile. Unpleasant, okay. At at this moment, who then I think, I think what he's trying to do is make some reference to Tiernan McCann's hair. Tiernan McCann's hair, which by the standards of the Tyrone Monaghan game, would be one of the more styled do's of the thirty men on the field at any particular. Time. No simple short back and sides for Tiernan. Well, look, it's, it is actually, it, I mean, basically, it is a short back at sides, but, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a bit of product in it, there's a bit of elevation, you know, whatever. You know, he's, he's, a, he's, he's with certain contemporary trends. What's the, what's the big deal about that? I think, I think the Monaghan player was probably making some reference to his hair, but as he puts his hand up to touch the hair, Tiernan McCann reacts brilliantly. I mean, uh, he, it's as though he knows what's coming. Maybe he, maybe he does know what's coming. Maybe the whole thing was designed to, to get that, but he reacts so fast He's got just the right amount of, um, of you know, the head sort of snapping back and then falls uh, really convincingly to the ground uh, and sort of rolls onto his face in, in uh, what we now know to have been staged uh, agony. Uh, it was brilliant. I mean, it was better than Rivaldo at the World Cup. You know, Rivaldo was, was one of the... Uh, uh, that, was, that was a moment that everybody, in, in, even in, in football, even in the debased uh, sport of football... Uh, all of us uh, were around the world looking. Oh, has the game? The game's gone. When we saw Rivaldo, but even Rivaldo had, took a, took a fraction of a second to make up his mind to do what he did. The ball was kicked to him by the Turkish player, um, hit him. Midriff. Rivaldo thought for a second and then went down, touching <laughs> clutching his face, um, and the Turkish guy got sent off. But Tuna McCann talked quicker than that. You know, it was it was more. It was either it was a pre-planned move or it's so instinctive to him. He is on a level with Luis Suarez. He's actually up there with Suarez uh, right now. I've got to say I admire it. All right. Well, you'd be pleased to know, Ken, that I got through. You might not be pleased to know even that I got through my entire playing experience at Croke Park on Monday night without throwing myself to the ground. Then I have got a lot less hair to ruffle than Tierney McCann and his uh, that's That doesn't mean no one would try to ruffle your hair, on. If you heard Monday's podcast, you'd have heard Owen Kelly giving a few tips to myself and Murph ahead of the big Gaelic Writers versus Croke Park staff charity match. Now, this was one period hurling, two periods Gaelic football, which is to say that I enjoyed... Two periods of this experience, and not so much the hurling. The first, oh, I see, right. Yeah. So it was the hurling. Oh yeah, before any, before any of you hurling apparatchiks get on, get on my case here. Okay, it's mm. purely because I never played the game. Well, I didn't play the game past the age of about thirteen competitively. Mm. Um, and so it's not like riding a bike then. No, it's not at all. No, not at all like riding a bike. But what was the the most frustrating part of the experience, Kev? You know, when you're just really bad at something. Yeah. And sure. I wasn't the only one in this boat, but you feel like you're the only. You feel like you're really embarrassing yourself out there, mm. because the other team actually had a few proper hurlers, which just was uh, added to the sense of unease. But I went out there. I brought a hurling helmet just in case they needed it. I was thinking, well, there'll be loads of people wanting to play the hurling, so I'll just sit in the sideline. Turned out there were a few. A lot of people reluctant, so I end up starting the game. I said, okay, I'll just hide up at corner forward. That's fine. No, no, no. You're dragged into midfield. Myself and Murph contested the throw-in again. Really? But I didn't really contest it. I let Murph contest it. He managed to flick it onto me, at which point I dropped the ball, dropped the schlitter. So you mm. don't even know the terminology. Dropped the schlitter, tried to pick it back up. It fell again. Then just tried to swing on it on the ground. Missed it completely. Right. Uh, and it only got worse from then. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Was Kieran was any good? At hurling. Yeah. Better, better than me, Ken. Right. Better than me, considering he's never played at all competitively. 
Uh, we lost the football quite heavily as well. So, so you lost everything. Yeah, we lost everything. By but what was it like being out there on the Hallow Turf? Oh, great. Uh, amazing. Like, I really enjoyed the Gaelic football part because I had a vague idea of what I'm supposed to do when I get this thing in my hands and how to yeah. do it, yeah. uh, even if it's only a vague idea. Uh, but all, all for Special Olympics Ireland as well. That's good. Well, gonna, That's good. Yeah. Any any more you want to know about my miserable hurting experience? Um, You're all right for now. I'm trying to think. I'm just trying to think if there's anything, any other aspect of it that interests me. It's more difficult to hook and block players in hurting than I thought. You, you see it. You see it on TV or at a game, and defenders are constantly getting these little hooks in. Yeah. Players streaking away from them, and they seem to be. JJ Delaney was the classic a couple of years ago, last year in the All Ireland final, wasn't it? Where he blocked a man, he hooked a man, even though they got, he was seemingly ten yards behind. You think, oh, JJ Delaney's lost his pace. Well, it doesn't matter because he's going to hook a guy. I tried to hook a few people and just, I kind of recoiled as their hurl came back towards my face. Yeah, and I'm getting a little too close to the action here. What about uh, your forearms on? What kind of condition are your forearms in? Terrible. Really? Weedy arms. Because it seems like you probably need, um, you know, quite a lot of uh, strength in the old forearm cables there to uh, manipulate that. Yeah. That thing and didn't really, yeah. yeah didn't you were just dragging it around behind you by the end. We're going to talk to Mike Quirk a little bit later about Kerry Tyrone and about uh, the latest in that disciplinary procedure. We're going to hear from Johnny Sexton about his hopes for the World Cup today and his reaction to Leo Cullen's appointment as Leinster coach. Simon's been out to meet him. How's your knowledge of secretive, enigmatic East African dictatorships, Ken? Um, not very good. Oh, well, uh, in common gonna... with a lot of people <laughs> in this part of the world. It's going to become a little bit better today. I asked because two cyclists from Eritrea competed at the Tour de France this year and returned home to a hero's welcome to a country that it's been, it's in the news lately, Eritrea, for having the third highest number of refugees in the world. Um, the United Nations actually released its uh, a big investigation into the country and reported systematic widespread and gross human rights violations that have been committed. They found a country in a permanent state of anxiety, which goes some way to explaining why there are so many people trying to flee. Now, quite how this country has produced the first two black African cyclists to make it to the Tour de France, which they did, is something we're going to talk about a little bit later on. But right now, let's get into Kerry Tyrone with Mike Quirk. Mike, Tiernan McCann's proposed eight-week ban has been overturned by the Central Hearings Committee. Does this whole process do... Everyone knew this was going to happen, uh, that it would be overturned. Does it do a bit of damage, do you think, to how people view the GAA's disciplinary system? I, I don't think I don't think you could damage it any further. Really, I don't think people view it like it's a like it's a like it's a very strong entity. I, I, I mean, everyone knew it was going to get overturned. I think I, I, people were jumping the gun a little bit on Twitter last night, and I, it came out about two hours before he actually was cleared that he that he was after being uh, that it was after being rescinded and stuff. But uh, no, I think I, I think it was the right decision. They, they came to in a, in a very long roundabout way. I don't think the guy deserved eight weeks. You know, for for uh, for what he did. No, no, I'd say what the GA was trying to do were draw, you know draw a line in the sand and make sure that you know if 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 next year if you're a guy that's going to throw himself on the floor and, and and make a clone of himself like that, you know you're going to be you're going to be hit with eight weeks. And I think that's going to be that's going to be clear from from you know convention or whatever whenever they make the rules that that's gonna that's gonna happen now. With it, no more will will they accept diving and and Tiernan McCann was just going to be unlucky that he was going to be the first guy, but uh, he's after he's after getting good counsel and got out, got away with it, I suppose. Right. So you actually think that the, they'll change the rule that they'll bring in a rule that will yeah, spe- yeah spe- they should bring in the rule specifically I mean, for diving though. Why diving? I mean, Darrow well, Shea says, says in his column, you know, who decides what, that a body check is part of the game, but a dive isn't, for example. Yeah, but I mean, if you, yeah, I I, I just I, I read that, but I I, I just think the, the the whole when you're when you when you see somebody do what what Tiernan McCann did the last day. You know, you know, people people were saying to me about you know last year, um, 
you know, Barry John Keane ran and kicked the ball off a tee against Donegal and, and, and it looked it looked horrific and it was really bad sportsmanship. And people were saying, you know, that's 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 as much, you know, damaging the the the, the, the credit of the fabric of the game as as what uh Taylor McCann did. But if you're if you're something if you're someone like Barry John Keane, you run and kick the ball off a tee, the only one you're 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 you can you can accept punishment yourself. You can get a yellow card for that or you can get whatever, you know, black card for what whatever you know, whatever the indiscretion is. Because you're 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 taking the responsibility of it yourself. You're saying I'm kicking that ball away. I'm going to get the blame here. What Tierney McCann did was was I'm I'm being really manipulative here, and I'm going to get somebody else. Somebody else is going to suffer because of my deception here, and somebody else is going to get sent off because I'm feigning injury and I'm you know faking like he he punched me in the face. I was at the game, and and when I saw when I saw him fall, obviously you just saw it out of the corner of my eye. When I when I saw him fall, I said, "Geez, this guy's after getting absolutely." You know, rocked across the jaw with a with a closed fist is was my initial reaction. When I watch it on TV later, I'm saying, my God, like he fooled sixty thousand people in Crow Park, he fooled the referee, and he got a guy sent off. Which, which I I, I don't think a body check is the same thing. You 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 can see you can you know a guy if a guy's going to nail you with a body check, you know he, he, you can see it if he does it late and he hits you, you're going to get he's going to get a card anyway. I just think the decept the deception involved in what McCann did, and and what Mahoney did back in two thousand and eight, and what you know what what. Shields did in the Munster final replay for Cork. I just think when you're when you're when you're on that line of of trying to get another guy sent off because of what you're doing, I think that's that's crossing the the line of of where we need to be with sportsmanship and the GA. And they, they're not all part of the, almost under the same umbrella though. Whether it's body checking or particularly say sledging, I know you had a, an issue with that. That the the, the players were up to all that kind of thing. If yeah. it's you're not going to get rid of necessarily diving without getting rid of sledging, without getting rid of it's almost. Yeah. Maybe I'm being defeatist here, and obviously the GA have to try to make their yeah. games as, as, I suppose, as uh, legitimate as they can. But are these things not just all here to stay at this point? I mean, you, you have to, you have to. I mean, I, I, like, I don't want to go to a game and watch, watch guys, you know, some guy touch somebody's hair and 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 he throws himself down, like you know, like we're watching La Liga on a, on a Sunday evening. I mean. Like it's there's 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 I, I I take your point I know what you're saying but there's a lot of ills in the game but that doesn't mean that we should just stop trying to eradicate them from the game I mean I think I think the fear of an eight week ban now that if you're if you're in a televised game when you're notice cameras all over the place. I don't think we'll ever see a guy throwing himself to the floor in the same way that McCann did the last day. Well, that's assuming that the rule does go th- get pu- pushed through, though, because at the moment, if as things stand, I mean, if I'm banned for eight weeks for a dive, I'm going to say, I'm going to, what my solicitor is going to say, yeah. uh, well, here, listen, look at Tierney McCann got his overturn, so how can I get banned for eight weeks? Well, uh, well, well, you would you would logically assume that the only the only possible course of action that they'll they'll take is they'll have to change the rule. That, they'll yeah. have to make a make a, you know, if you if you're if you're you know simulating that. Or your, whatever it is, it's your diving or your feigning injury. Uh, you know, I, I, you know, obviously it's going to have to be a clear cut. And that was obviously a clear cut one. You know, Mahoney's was a clear cut one in two thousand and eight. Shields was a clear cut one the months of final this year. You know, those clear cut ones need to be like we. You need to draw a line in the sand now. Whatever team it is, whatever county you're from, is 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 this stuff happens? There's some guy up there who's looking at a computer screen. And he says, "Yeah, we'll we'll go retrospectively, and yeah, this serves an eight week ban, and you can forget about your appeal because we want to stamp that out again." And I and I think the fear of an eight week no eight weeks is an awful long time now in a in a in a summer season. And I think if you if you start with that. You know, I, I think the fear of that is is just going to have guys saying, "No, I'm, I'm not going to." I mean, you look at Michael Murphy the last day. You know, Kevin Keane. Kevin Keane is a is a big, strong character. He punched Michael Murphy into the jaw 
and Murphy kind of looked at the, the umpire and started calling his finger and called the referee because he got punched in the face. You know, and, and, and like that's the, I know that's probably a, kind of an old kind of, you know, GA is supposed to be manly and stuff. But I mean, if like Kevin Keane still got his punishment, he got punched in the face, or he, he punched Murphy in the face, he got his red card, which should have stuck, which is a ridiculous decision to rescind that one. But Murphy, Murphy took it the way, the way you're supposed to take it, I suppose, not not throwing himself on the floor, and he got a right crack in the jaw, and and it just it's just very distasteful, in when you see the other side of it, where where you know this Ronaldo stuff, and he's diving around with this Ken one like that one, but yeah, that's, that's. I was just about to come in, right? Because I was thinking, I mean, the reason that 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 someone like Ronaldo does that is to call attention to violence that's perpetrated against him. If he doesn't, then the referee doesn't notice it. You can see that referees don't notice anything. I mean, this Tiernan McCann yeah. thing, the referee. He's looking straight at it, <laughs> yeah. and he, he doesn't. He doesn't know what he's seeing. So if you don't call attention, if you don't call the attention of the referee, then people who are who want to be violent are going to get away with it. And and yeah. and the, the Tiernan McCanns and the Ronaldos are just re- redressing the balance a little bit. Yeah, yeah, no, that's that's yeah. Look, I don't want to put him in the same bracket quite as Ronaldo just yet, but his hair is probably in that same kind of you know it's nice and fluffy. And stuff. But I, I, I just. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't accept that it, that it's any that it's any part in the in the in the, in GAA and Gaelic football. I, it's 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 never been a part, you know, bar a couple of isolated incidents. And I think that the the real threat of a two month suspension is gonna is going to stop it completely. I mean, Tiernan McCann and and Tyrone have no problem, you know, looking after themselves physically or the threat of violence against them I don't think is, is something that keeps them awake at night and uh, I, I don't think they need to be you know because you see the thing and, and, and I said this last week the, the big thing for the likes of Tierra McCann Tierra McCann is playing some unbelievable football for the last two or three games and he was awesome the same day and nobody is talking about how you know how energetic and dynamic his performance was and you know how he was running across the field for, for 75 minutes for his black card they, you know he, he just took from himself really is what he's after doing and he's have to take it from the game a little bit but I think they came to the right decision I don't I don't believe that it was an eight week suspension right off the bat because the guy didn't really understand what the rules of engagement were now I think if this rule change comes which I'd be shocked if it doesn't um, you know I, I, I think I think everybody you know goes into their eyes wide open and knows what's happening. And you know you were you, you mentioned the, the sledging earlier on. Yeah. Like the sledging is my big is my is my big thing with him at, at the moment. You know I I didn't really care about him diving the floor because he just made a fool of himself really as opposed to you know a whole pile else apart from getting getting his man sent off. But it's the sledging and it's the mouthing and it's the verbals that I think the referees and and linesmen and umpires are just being absolutely you know just burying their head in the sand and just ignoring and not doing anything about it. And I, I think that's the real, the real big issue with them at the moment. You yeah, know? I guess that m- maybe that's a difficult one sometimes to, to prove and to prove exactly who said what. Anyway, I just want to move on a little bit to the game itself because there's this idea that the... And I have to say, I was sucking into it myself a little bit that this siege mentality is great for Tyrone and that they've caused yeah. Kerry so much problems in the past. Today, this morning, I was thinking about this and um, I managed to convince myself of, if not the opposite... Uh, I think there's maybe too much being made of this because Kerry, if you look at it, the substitutes they got to bring on against Kildare after scoring seven goals, Galvin, Tommy Walsh, Darren Sullivan, surely Kerry's much better calibre of players now means that the siege mentality part of things, the recent historical part of things, is almost irrelevant. I mean, Kerry just have better players and should win this game. I think so, yeah. I think so. I think so. Like this is a great, this is a great kind of side story, and and it, and and, I, and Tyrone need this to be honest, because you know they've like they've they've that that 
county football setup has suffered some tra- some ridiculous tragedy in the last fifteen years, and and causes bond them together. They, you know, they, they seem to play their best football when they when they feel they've been, you know, discredited and wronged by everybody, and 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 this this is a big cause. They, they they're they're on a path of everybody's against us. You know, they're, they're trying to ban our players. They're you know we're getting no that southern based media. That's a lot. That's people. That's a lot of people that they're just kind of drawing out. That's that's really against them, and it's. You know, and and this is Mickey Hart does this, and he gets you know he gets them to buy into it, and, and it's I, I just don't think I just don't think when you look at it really critically, how many of those guys would actually get on to carry first fifteen? How many, you know, their forwards from the from the two thousands? You know, Mulligan, Canavan, Stephen O'Neill, that you know they don't have that same quality up front that they that they had back in those kind of glory days. Um, I just think yeah, if you're if you're looking at it in the cold light of day. I think Kerry have the better players now. We probably had the better players in 2008 as well, and they still won the game. But I, I don't think they're they're quite at that level. And this is a bit of a distraction now. But I really, I would be surprised if Kerry didn't have have enough to to get over the line. You were involved uh, back in 2003 on possibly the most famous meeting between the counties. Uh, have you got any particular standout memory of that day, or do you want to relive it? Well, I, I actually just I, I wrote um, on Wednesday about about it was it was very strange. Everybody took the the 2003 one it was the first time we really played them in. in in, uh, in 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 championship and everybody had that you know that that iconic kind of twenty second clip of you know Kerry player get a ball you know he was being surrounded by two or three Tyrone fellas he'd come out of it two or three more Tyrone fellas and it was like a pack of animals just attacking like kind of a wildebeest standing at the edge of the water it was it was it was frightening stuff and everybody took that image from the game but really late in the game with about ten minutes to go I don't know if he was even shown on TV but. Uh, we were sitting. We were sitting in the in the in the stand of substitutes, and we were just looking. And uh, this guy, this older, this older uh, Kerry supporter. Now I'm talking. I'm talking like maybe 80 years of age. Like <laughs> he he ambled down to to party party. Shea, um, party Shea was the manager at the time, and he ambled down to the hoarding, uh, right right at the edge of the, of the pitch in the Hogan stand, and he he, he climbed over the hoarding. There was obviously security was a bit looser, and he and he walked out to the sideline about you know two or three meters to party, and party was kind of looking at him. There, there was about maybe six seven minutes to go. The game was gone from us, and and he put up his two fists right in front of party and started throwing out left jabs at party's face. We 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 were looking at this thing. What what in the world is going on here? He we we thought maybe he was a Tyrone guy or he was, the guy was from Clarny, and obviously absolutely disgusted with what was going on in the pitch. <laughs> threw out about five or six punches at Party, and Party kind of backed away and shuffled away and a little bit of Ali stuff and blocked him and and, and walked away. And you he didn't, he, he didn't throw anything back. I assume Party did he? He what? He didn't throw anything back because we've seen no, it. We've, we've no, seen no, Party over the years, Land. Uh, <laughs> I certainly remember that uh, Dinny Allen haymaker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, he. It was, it was just, I think it, people were kind of in shock. We, see, nobody expected us to lose that game. That was a game that we were just supposed to get over to get to the final. And, and there was money, there was talk about this guy had, had a had, had big money on, on Kerry to get to the final. And he wasn't happy with party's contribution of what happened anyway. And he came out and he started showing haymakers. And there were stewards there looking at him for about kind of 10, 15 seconds before they kind of went, you know, okay, maybe we should take this guy back to his seat. And the 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 they grabbed him, brought him back. Instead of throwing out of the stadium, they got him and brought him back to his seat, and you know, calmed him down, gave him a cup of tea, and that was the end of his. <laughs> that was the end of his couple of punches at party on the sideline right. at Cork Park. It was bizarre stuff. So I always kind of, I always said, if this is, if this is what our own crowd want to do to us, like what, what chance have we got against this other gang who think we're absolutely, 
you know, discrediting him all ends up. So it was, it was a strange one to take from it. But that was um, that was my first experience of Kerry and Tyrone, and it was our own supporters that were losing yeah. losing a nut as opposed to the other team. It's a strange one, Mike. Hopefully, nothing like that will uh, unsavour it. That will happen on Sunday. But listen, enjoy the game, and it's great to talk to you again. Thanks a million. Well done. Okay, thanks, John. No, Joe, Joe, if he's on, if he's on, Joe, hang on a second. Doctors do not get thrown to the ground. Hang on, Joe, Joe. No, this is not allowing you trivialise it. That's all I'm doing. Confident that a new rule will be brought in at some stage to punish diving with an automatic eight-week ban. I'm not so sure it's going to be as clear-cut as that because once the furore has died down over this one, yeah, county board delegates and even managers and others might be thinking, well, I don't necessarily want to put myself in a position where I lose a player for essentially the entire championship for some counties, mm-hmm. eight weeks, and certainly the guts of the championship for a lot of others, especially if it ends up being one of those dubious ones, or oh, is it a dive, is it not? You end up coming down the wrong end of this, getting the, the wrong end of that particular call. I'm not sure, I'm just not as convinced uh, that it's actually going to happen. What, what, other, if, what other things can you get an eight-week plan for? Don't have it in front of me here, Ken. Like defrauding the GAA, like no. stealing money from GAA central accounts. Uh, no, um, striking and that kind of thing would tend to have striking. Yeah, as in like, physical. No, no, not going somebody. on strike. Yes. Okay. I'm using the but, rule book. But you could feasibly get an eight week ban for pu- for punching somebody. I would say so. Yeah, I don't have it in front of me now. Yeah, it I could happen. So. I would say so. Yeah. Okay. Well, in that case, fair enough. I mean, to, to me, it would it would be, you know, if it, if it was like if the ban for diving was bigger than the ban for punching somebody. I think that would be wrong. I don't think a standard instance of somebody punching would be an eight-week ban, but I'm, I'm kind of shooting in the dark here again because I don't have that. Uh, yeah, yet. I mean, I mean, it's all very well to, to espouse a manly ethos. You know, a sort of... Uh, you know, I mean, I mean uh, Mike referred to La Liga there. And maybe there's a kind of a sense, okay, you know, maybe, maybe not a lot of lads in the GAA would ultimately be able to play at that technical level. Mm-hmm. You know, in, in La Liga. No, I'm not just talking about, you know, against like Messi and Neymar, but, you know, maybe even against Real Sociedad, this kind of team. On the other hand, how many of those lads would survive in the uh, in the championship? You know, if you put them out there, it's a different kind of a test. Um, and I think there's a, so there's an understandable desire to want to preserve what it is that makes the test kind of a special thing, you know, the, the, to, to preserve the naked aggression um <laughs> and an occasional brutality that is part of Gaelic football. That is, that's actually an important part of the game which has to be preserved, which is, which is maybe why people look at diving and think it's worse than actually punching people in the head. But I think at that point you need to step back a little bit and go, hang on a second, we've lost perspective here. Yeah. Actually, violence, um, you know, punching people is worse than, um, is worse than pretending, uh, you know, trying to, trying to cheat. Trying to get your opponent's end off. Paddy O'Shea did very well to resist the urge to hit back at that 80-year-old man who was throwing left jabs at him that, that day. Well, that's... The, I mean, is there no footage of this? Of that, no. But there is footage, kind of the punching... I've referenced Paddy O'Shea losing his rag on the field and say, I'll show this to you now. This is Paddy O'Shea versus Dinny Allen in an old Munster oh, seen, final class. I've seen this You've seen one. this before, yeah? Oh, yeah, just, yeah. Uh, hopefully it's, it isn't too long. No, it's just about 10 seconds here. I seen this one. Yeah, TGK. Oh, he takes... Oh. I mean, that's an, that's an incredible... Uh, Punch, Can you describe what you're saying? He takes a backhanded well, a, sort of punch. There's an elbow. There's a, there's a, Dini Allen tr- tries to sort of shrug Podioche off by basically um, waving an elbow in his face. Um, there's a moment when they both stare at each other. <laughs> you know, Dini Allen is sort of saying, 
He's, they, they literally come to a complete standstill. Jimmy Allen has, tur- has turned around. He's got the ball in his left hand. He's just looking at Potty as, as though to say, what is, you know, what's your problem, Potty? Why, uh, why do you behave in this way? Which is, at which point, Potty O'Shea just decks him with a left hook. A really, really hard punch to the jaw. Uh, which, which received a yellow card, if I remember correctly. You see the where, referee. Where is the referee? The referee's slipping his way over to the uh, to the scene of the crime. There. Yeah. So I don't. I don't know. But I mean, I suppose in that case, body would would point out the point to the fact that that elbow was clearly intentional. And uh, look, I mean, if you're going to let these kinds of things go unpunished, it's not a place for shrinking violets. The no. Guardian are doing a series in the moment, at the moment I should say, on life in Eritrea, Africa's most secretive and little known country. As part of that series, David Smith, their Africa correspondent, has written a really interesting piece focusing on a sporting element. And he joins us now to explain what that is. David, thanks very much, first of all, for chatting to us. Thank you. Uh, can you maybe explain a little bit about the background um, of I suppose a rather mysterious country. It's been described recently as the North Korea of Africa. Why is that? What what exactly is Eritrea all about? Eritrea is certainly um, an enigma. And um, I know this is a foreign correspondent uh, reporting on Africa. Uh, I have never been, um, not for the want of trying, but uh, visas to to go and visit Eritrea are are very hard to come by. Um, It's a secretive place. And um, there have certainly been a lot of allegations of uh, human rights abuses um, and journalists um, being being locked up. It's uh, it's often said to be the, the country in Africa that jails more journalists than uh, any other. Um, it's it's a young country. Eritrea um, gained independence from um, Ethiopia in 1993 after a, after a long and, and, and bitter war. Uh, there has not actually been um, a democratic election um, since then. And so um, many human rights groups and outside observers would say that it's uh, it's lacking in democracy and, and, and human rights. And as evidence, they would point to the large number of uh, people uh, fleeing Eritrea. I think it's been estimated about 3% of the population uh, coming to the UK and, and other parts of uh, Europe. Um, a very hot topic at the moment. Um, so, um, yeah, very uh, mysterious and, and enigmatic um, and, uh, you know, the outside world knows very little about it. Um, but funny enough, um, just last night I was talking to um, a German journalist who did manage to get a visa and go in. And he said it was uh, Asmara, the capital, was by far the most beautiful city in the whole of Africa. And uh, there's quite a flourishing uh, culture of young intellectuals there, people reading uh, Nietzsche and uh, Schopenhauer and um and, and, and actually a whole whole different side um, to daily life that uh, perhaps we don't know much about. Well, it seems remarkable, uh, given the, the background you talk about there, or particularly the, the background of um, human rights, alleged human rights abuses and oppression, all these kind of things. Should we be surprised that the, for, this is the country that's produced the first two black Africans to ride in the Tour de France? Um, you know, I suppose, I think cycling um, aficionados would be perhaps not so surprised because um, um, cycling has been described as the unofficial sort of state religion in Eritrea. They are absolutely cycling mad and um, obsessive. Um, And again, um, that can be traced to the the history of the country. Um, When the Italians came in the late 19th century, um, they they brought bicycles and a a cycling culture. And um, uh, soon clubs were organized within a generation and, um, 
there was uh, a sort of tour of Eritrea, if you like, the equivalent of a tour of France, although at first only Italians were allowed to compete. But uh, but cycling really um, took, took grip and um, you know, people who go there say you sit in cafes and old cycling races are on TV. Um, you can't really move for bikes. Uh, uh, everybody sort of grows up wanting to be a cyclist, really. And, and therefore, um, I, I think they've won the last four African championships, something like that. And, um, and, and they are the, among the best in, in the continent. Uh, and, and as you can imagine, there's not that many other African countries where, where cycling is big, but, uh, but they are certainly um, sort of uh, one of the leaders. Where did that come from originally, David, that connection to cycling? You mentioned the Italian colonization. I'm guessing that that would be the case. Yes, that was the. Uh, I think that was the the, the big issue. Um, it was, I think, in the you know sort of eighteen nineties, the Italians brought the first uh, bike, um, and uh, you know, like that uh, that wonderful architecture in Asmara, um, it, it just stuck um, in you know, a country of sort of six million people. Um, another attribute they have, uh, maybe a bit similar when you think of the uh, the marathon runners and long distance runners in. Uh, in Kenya and Ethiopia is um, Asmara is uh, very high altitude. It's uh, 2,325 meters um, above sea level. Uh, a lot of the roads are also quite mountainous. So they have uh, some perfect conditions to really hone um, good cycling. Presumably the, the obvious reason why there haven't been Africans, black Africans in uh, the Tour de France before is the prohibitive cost of cycling, uh, certainly relative to the standard of life in most or in, certainly in many African countries. That being the case, how is it in Eritrea that this seems to have been circumvented, that they've got to, they've got to a point where they can produce these professional cyclists? Um, yeah, I think maybe a bit like uh, tennis traditionally. Um, it's probably fair to say cycling has been quite a Eurocentric sport, uh, generally dominated uh, by the white uh, middle class. Um, not a lot of opportunities for, for people um, from Africa. Uh, the turning point um, in this instance was a team called uh, MTN uh, Quebeca, which um, is actually registered in uh, South Africa that, um, you know, was just sort of uh, one man's dream, really, that uh, South Africa should have an entrant into the Tour de France. And I, I, I think they wanted to do it uh, last year, couldn't quite get it together. They had to go this year instead. And um, to be fair, have some riders from Belgium and Britain, Norway and, and America. Uh, but, but just simply by being um, based in Africa, I, I guess they cast the net wider and um, were alive to the... Uh, the rise of, of African cycling, which um, we've also seen in countries like uh, Rwanda, where um, there's something called Team Rwanda that uh, had uh, one or two competitors in the in the last Olympics. Um, and, and so these these Eritreans, uh, I guess, it, you know, the timing was right um, for that opportunity. Um, and MTM Quebec, you know, were compared by some to the infamous Jamaican bobsleigh team in the 1988 Winter Olympics. Uh, this This kind of rags to riches story sort of seeming no hopers but they actually stunned the cycling world really they i think they won uh, a couple of stages of the tour de france and, and finished fifth in the overall um, team standings which um you know is a, is a really an amazing result in itself the two cyclists returned home to uh heroes welcome and were met the president all that kind of thing is this being seen as a massive pr exercise for the country and for its dictator 
That's a, a great question. I mean, I think um, the president was certainly milking it for all it's worth. The, um, uh, the cyclists came home, as you say, um, you know, sort of a street parade. Their car was decked out like a jersey from the Tour de France with polka dots. And um, it was made, basically making a beeline um, for the president, uh, you know, for him to, to welcome them home. And of course, we know so little about what goes on in Eritrea. I, I don't know um, whether that was broadcast uh, hour after hour on state television, uh, whether what newspapers there are there sort of made a, made a big deal of it. Um, I, I'd be fascinated to know if it was turned into a big uh, propaganda story um, for for the president. Uh, the, the cyclists themselves seem to uh, avoid talking about politics too much. Um, they, they always have a difficulty getting visas when they go abroad because of the the fear that they will um, they will just uh, claim asylum and, and and try to flee the country. But uh, a cycling coach I spoke to said, you know, they they wouldn't do that for a start. They're very proud to be Eritrean, and also they they know it would be the the death of their of their cycling careers. Um, but uh, I think for the outside world, to be honest, um, uh, you know, it, has, it hasn't been too much of a propaganda coup for, for the regime. You know, people are more interested in celebrating the individual cyclists. Uh, and, and overall, there's still more bad, bad publicity than good for, for that regime because of um, all the, uh, the refugees we're seeing from Eritrea. I think uh, a recent survey found it was the, the third biggest nationality after people from uh, I think it was Afghanistan and Syria. Mm. The quote at the top of your piece, David, just lastly, is uh, the next wave of riders is even better how Eritrean, cycle, Eritrean cycling is preparing to peak. Is there any chance that, um, based on that, that we could see the, either these cyclists or the next generation of cyclists from Eritrea reach the very top, a Tour de France winner from the country, perhaps? It's perfectly possible, I think, with, um, with time. Um, I mean, I suppose there was that famous... Uh, Pele uh, quotation, wasn't it, that we'll see a, an African winner of the Football World Cup uh, by the end of the 20th century. And that was obviously proved spectacularly wrong. Yeah, I, I'd say he so, was in Africa when he made that because he's, uh, whatever country Pele finds himself in, I think he tends to, <laughs> he tends to pander <laughs> to, the, to, to the locals there. Has he even said it about Ireland? Too? Not quite, no, but I think he did say something nice about us one year. Yeah, I think Eric Cantona <laughs> tipped us to win the World Cup one year. <laughs> um, but, um, uh, you know, on the other hand, um, we have seen in athletics uh, with Kenyan and Ethiopian long distance runners, the, um, the amazing potential uh, of uh, sports in those countries and, um, you know, uh, including with that advantage of uh, high, high altitude and what it does for your, your lungs and, and blood and, and, and so on. Um, cycling, perhaps a bit more technical. There's so much training. So, you know, just the quality of the bikes themselves is important, but um but yeah, um, they've uh, made such a big impact in such a short space of time that um, you know I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't bet against uh, Eritreans winning the, the Tour de France before too long, and, and and that would of course be a tremendous boost and and fillet for the Tour de France after you know all the bad publicity in recent years over um, drug abuse. Yep. Listen, David Smith, the Africa correspondent with the Guardian, is thanks so much. Great story. Thanks a million. Thank you. Really interesting stuff there about uh, a country about which I um, know very little. David mentioned how difficult it is to get a journalist visa to visit Eritrea. Sinead O'Shea, the Irish Times journalist, did actually manage to get into Eritrea a few years back undercover. Uh, She witnessed a system that was 
She describes herself exerting total control over its citizens. She said, she said it was difficult to engage anybody in conversation. Everybody essentially believed they're under surveillance. Whether they were or they weren't, they felt that they were under surveillance and uh, they, that created a state of anxiety. Uh, the point that she also makes is that it's... The, so it was 1993 that they gained their independence from Ethiopia, but they've never come off a war footing ever since then. And that's how the country justifies its um, so its control over its citizens. After the, all these sort of decades, they still feel like we don't have any Western allies for a start. If Ethiopia were to come and uh, try to reclaim us, uh, we would have no. We have to be ready to fight back. We have to to pour all our resources into that side of things. So it's really interesting stuff. She actually produced a video at that time, which we'll link to if you want to have a look to learn a little bit more about the country. Right now, Ken's going to tell us what exactly is coming up in the Irish Times Second Captain's Football Podcast today. That's... Yeah. They have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. Walk up. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. What are you talking about? What did you know? I'd like to stay alive for six days. I'll say it to your face. I'll say it to you now. I'm down 12 field. I'm going to see them. What are you doing down here? You're showing me, man. Guess who's back, Owen? Josie Mourinho? I mean, in the studio with us. Richie Sadler. Richie Sadler. Richie Sadler's back. And we will talk about a little bit about Josie Mourinho, who has gazumped Manchester United. Or Pedro, a player Manchester United now claim not to have wanted in any in any real sense. Uh, so we'll talk a little bit about that and uh, the mechanics of that uh, that deal. No game for the Irish rugby team this weekend as the players get a bit of a break from World Cup preparations, which has given you the chance, Simon, to meet up with probably the most important player in our team, really. You kind of get the sense that if Johnny Sexton, if we see Johnny Sexton as best in England and Wales, it means that we're going pretty well. Yeah, because I suppose there's a fair bit of discussion about strength and depth, particularly after the Welsh game. But in reality, uh, out half, maybe full back to an extent, and obviously tight head to an extent, but out half, ultimately, there's still that huge drop-off. And uh, he's one of the last to be tested. Um, interesting that he's back fully under the fold as well for Ireland. You know, there's no thoughts of uh, extra French fixtures or anything like that for him now. There's, there's total clarity in this what he's This is the doing. first time for a while, actually. And this is really exciting because he's done very well. He's managed to do very well for Ireland while still having to go back to France during Six Nations yeah, tournaments. Yeah, he's getting pulled very, in and yeah, out. Yeah, and yeah. we know he's fairly centrally involved. Of all the characters to, that to happen to, yeah. he's the one who'd most want to spend time in the Irish camp with Joe Yeah, spend, spend time A, talking tactics with Joe Smith, and B, probably kicking practice, all those things which he had to forego. So you, you will be quite excited about the sort of form he'll be in now coming into the World Cup, given that there's a proper preparation time. Yeah. You, met, you met him out at the airport today? Yeah, he w- he's an ambassador for Aer Lingus. They're doing extra flights, obviously, during the World Cup for fans over to Cardiff and London, I suppose, are two of the main places they're also going into Bristol. But, yeah, Johnny's the ambassador for them. But the big news of the day, really, was that Leo Cullen did finally get the Leinster job. Um, it was being mooted for a few weeks. I think everybody knew it was kind of going to happen. It actually took a little longer to actually announce. But... Just I, Johnny knows uh, Leo obviously as a player, and I, I first asked Johnny if, when he watched Leo as a player, did he foresee him? Did he always seem like one of those guys who would become a coach? Yeah, exactly. You can pick the coaches from a mile away, and you can you can certainly pick the guys in the current crop that would coach and guys that would never ever be able to coach. And I think Leo was always one that you knew he would he would be a coach. I think Czech used. To, Telling me he looked like an accountant, um, so maybe thought about that and decided against it. But uh, no, he's look. I, I'm really looking forward to getting back and working underneath him. And I think he's got the the values that he 
holds close to himself. I think if he can get those across to, to, to players and get them believing in them, I think we'll be in a good place. Does it matter? Like, Gervin Dempsey's involved as well, uh, Fogarty's in there, and it's a bit like Munster now where it's an all Irish setup, um, ex Leinster people now coaching. Is that relevant in any way, do you think? Look, I think continuity in an environment is really important to, to sort of hold on to those values that you build up through, through hard times, through trying to find success, and um, I think they've, they've managed to do that. I think there is obviously scope to, to, to bring in someone new if they want to, if they can find someone, and um, maybe that's an avenue that they go down. I'm not, I'm not really sure. Like I said, we've been in Irish setup, very much focused on that for the last few weeks, uh, for a few months, I should say. So haven't really had a chance to sort of get in there and um, suss things out and, and, and make a judgment on it. But I can only... You know, go with what I think, and uh, you know, I think it's a great decision. The Irish camp, as you say, you've been there for a few weeks now, and it's been there's been no really information leaking from it. In previous World Cups, you hear about personal best being hit, or about the intensity of training, or, or what it might be. And the Welsh and the French and the English, even you're hearing big things about altitude training and heat training and whatnot. With Ireland, what, what is the focus? A little bit more ball focused this time. We get the feeling from Joe that. Like you guys are obviously in great shape. You've won two Six Nations in a row. Is it a little more fine-tuning at this stage? Is that the sense of the squad? No, I think, look, we've had different blocks. I think we've we've had a massive focus on, yeah, on the things that are important at this time of year in terms of, you know, your strength, your speed and your your fitness and stuff like that. But, um, yeah, there's been a certain rugby focus at different times, um, more so in the last few weeks, definitely. And, uh, look, they... I think the best thing is that the players trust the, the management and, and this uh, Jason Cowman to get things right um, from a preparation point of view. And, and, and all we can do then is to just throw yourselves into it. If they tell us to do something, you just do it as best you can, and knowing and trusting that they've thought it out. And uh, it's great to do that. You know what I mean? It, you don't have to worry about it. We're doing the right thing here. You just trust. It's absolutely. I mean, it's almost unprecedented, probably in Irish rugby, that. There could be no question what the coaches have done over the last few years. It's an unprecedented run of success. So the, the players are kind of like, like you say, not second guessing anything. No, I think. Look, I think the, the players are always asking questions to a certain extent, but um, you know we do have that level of trust. You know, there has been times where we've learned from. You know, you talk about the New Zealand game, the England game away, the Welsh game away, where you know those are the games that we've lost under Joe. That. You know, we've learned a hell of a lot from that and we've had meetings after those games that have been quite tough and um, you know, look, we've definitely asked questions of each other and, and that's what's allowed us to have that little bit of success as well. You're kind of known as a, a student of the game, as a, a fan of the game. I know that's kind of obvious, you're a professional rugby player, but even beyond the normal kind of professional rugby player, you have a huge interest in it and the tactical side of it, I know you have a, a relationship with Joe in that sense as well. Do you find yourself in the build-up to World Cup kind of taking a bit more of a global view and, and looking what other countries are doing because generally going into World Cup things change um, teams come up with new tactics uh, some surprises because this is the event yeah definitely I think you know the World Cup I think is in the back of everyone's mind you know two years out um, and trying to keep it there is the hard part and then surely when it's on your doorstep now it's uh, it's nice because you can now finally focus on it um, fully and you've, you, you don't have to think about anything else but uh, no I definitely I don't know how people that are involved in rugby aren't, you know, as fanatical about it. Yeah. I don't know how you can do something like that without being that. But uh, 
yeah, definitely look at you know the Australian New Zealand matches and, and the intensity that they were played at, and you know you have to try and replicate that in, in training, which is obviously very tough, and, and you know you're going to have to push yourself in these you know pre-season test matches um, to to get to that level pretty quick, and it's, it's a big challenge. Yeah, nice stuff there with Johnny Sexton, Simon. He seems to be in a decent frame of mind there. He seems bemused by the idea that anyone wouldn't be fanatical about rugby, as fanatical as yeah, he is. Yeah, as we suggested before, some players maybe struggle with that being in rugby camp for so long, but I think it will suit him and the proximity to Joe. Just the point about the new setup at Leinster, uh, and you mentioned there with him that it's, it's similar to Munster now, it's very much a homegrown thing. Would you think he made a very small reference there to, yeah, you know, maybe they might still look for somebody else from outside. Would you get the sense that, especially having worked abroad now, that maybe he'd like a little bit more than, uh, I'm not saying that he wouldn't respect Leo Cullen and Gervin Dempsey's involved in the backs and these kind of people, but actually he, it, would suit, it would suit Sexton to have somebody else out there to help hone the back play, or certainly and maybe even his play. Yeah, fully. I, I spoke to him off air and he, he had no involvement. He didn't speak to anybody at Leinster about who might come in. He was really happy with Leo, obviously, but um, I would have thought he'd been the type of character, given how much he spoke when he was at Racing Metro about their style of play and how they needed to change things. He's not afraid to talk about the overall operations at a club, but he seemingly didn't have any influence on this. Um, Gervin Dempsey, uh, the Leinster A team, have been playing really good rugby and right. been quite successful under Gervin Dempsey. He's just the backs coach until the end of the World Cup, so maybe they're going to see a how they go. It, it kind of buys them a little bit of time. See how the team go in that time. There won't be a huge amount of focus or any sort of media pressure during the World Cup. Leinster will play under the radar, which is quite a rare thing for them, obviously. So I think they'll probably give Gervin those few months to see how he goes because it's a completely different setup. Leinster he might have gone very well, but it's it's a totally new challenge, obviously. Um, and you would imagine Johnny would be totally out of the picture in that time. But you would imagine by the time the senior players come back in, Heaslip, etc., maybe then they could have more of a chat about how the team has gone under Gervin. Ken, you're picturing a bright future for Leinster Rugby under Leo Cullen? I think so. As head coach, yeah. I think he knows the club inside out. He certainly does, yeah. He's <laughs> been involved there for, for many years. He's got the Ken Erdy seal of approval. He does. Well, I know, I know a guy who uh, was in school with him who gives him two thumbs up. Okay. Both hands are giving, making the thumbs up sign, is what I'm saying. Well, one, one thing about him knowing the club inside out, he did go to Leicester... And he did captain Le- Leicester. They really admired him over there. So it's not like a guy who's only known one club and yeah. only succeeded at one club under one culture. Um, I think it's quite important that he went abroad for two years. All right. Uh, we'll have the football podcast out a little bit later on today. Thanks very much for listening to this one. You can follow us on Twitter at Second Captains. Facebook.com forward slash, forward slash Second Captains. Thank you, Ken. Thank you, Owen. Thank you, Simon. Thank you, Owen. And thank you, Simon. Thank you, Ken. Thanks very much for listening. We'll talk to you soon. That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 